Hello and welcome to the Spectator Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Marianne Seacart, who has been an assistant editor of The Times, is the chair of the Social Market Foundation, a very long time journalist and commentator on political matters and many others. And her new book is called The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. Marianne, welcome. What do you mean by the authority gap? Because you talk about authority in more than one sense, don't you? Yes, I talk about authority in terms of expertise, being an authority on a subject, but also authority in terms of power, having authority over other people. And women in both sorts of authority find it harder to be accepted and taken seriously than men do. I mean, you yourself, as I, I, I sketched only a couple of your many accomplishments at the beginning of this. You know, you're a person who is in considerable authority as a woman. What's your experience been of the authority gap in your own life and in reaching the distinctions you met? Well, this book really isn't about me. It's about all women. I do put the odd anecdote in. But, you know, I was lucky enough to be accorded public authority by The Times as a columnist and, and a senior editor. So that made life much easier for me. And I, and I acknowledge that. But even so, I've still had experiences of having my authority either undermined or questioned or challenged. I mean, I give an example, for instance, in the book, I was at a conference and I was standing with two other male delegates and one was a former head of the Foreign Office and another was a BBC foreign correspondent. So they knew far more about foreign affairs than I did. But I was the UK political expert there because I'd spent about 30 years writing about British politics. And another delegate comes up, ignores me entirely, addresses the two men and says, can I ask you a question about British politics? Could Tony Blair ever make a comeback? So I answer, not a chance. And I start to explain why, given the position of the Labour Party at the moment and its membership. He can't even bear to look at me as I'm answering and then asks a follow up question of the two men. So I actually pluck him by the sleeve so he has to look at me and I say to him, look, I'm actually the British political columnist here. I do know what I'm talking about. Now, why should I have had to do that? Yeah, and you've got countless instances of um, very senior women being you know, mistaken for the tea lady and so forth. What was it that made you think this book, you know, now is the time I need to write this book? How did, what was the gestation of the book for you? That's not too genuine. I think a lifetime for me. I think a lifetime for me, actually. I mean, I was one of uh, several female journalists who set up women in journalism back in the 1990s. So I have been thinking about this for a very long time. But I think I had to prove myself and my authoritativeness in a male world before I felt able to write this sort of book and to hope that it would be taken seriously by men as well as women. So I spent a lifetime writing about business and then about politics, which are traditionally seen as male subjects, in order to earn my spurs, really, among men. But I started thinking about writing this actually four years ago, which was before even Me Too, and I had no idea that I would actually be surfing a giant wave, as it turned out, by the time it was published. Early on in the book, you say, I mean, it's, it's almost on, I think, page 11, you say, when I say woman, I mean anyone who identifies as a woman. Is it, I and mean, I don't want to get sidetracked into to the that debate, but is it as simple as that? Well, it is actually, and I, I wrote a, I think a fascinating chapter about the experience of trans people, because what happens is that when 
women transition into being seen as men, they almost immediately discover that they are accorded far more respect and they are listened to more attentively and what they say is taken more seriously and their work is taken more seriously. And exactly the opposite happens when men start living as women and suddenly people talk over them, they interrupt them, they don't take their work near, nearly as seriously. And I found this fascinating because they're exactly the same people with the same ability, intelligence, experience, body of work. And the only variable that has changed is their gender. So it's actually a very scientific way of measuring the authority gap. Because normally what happens is, I don't know, a woman says something at a meeting and is ignored. And then a man makes the same point and is fated. And she thinks, well, maybe I didn't sound confident enough or maybe... I don't know, maybe they just respect him more than I do. And it's always hard in any individual instance to show that it's gender that's making the difference. But the experience of trans people shows that it so obviously is. Well, I mean, you do have this one chapter. It's got a fascinating case study because it's two dons at the same university, isn't it? That's right. So there were two professors at Stanford, both science professors, who transitioned in opposite directions at the same time. Ben Barris, a neuroscientist, said, I've had the thought a million times, I'm just taken more seriously now. My work, the same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously. And someone who didn't know his history was overheard at the back of one of his seminars saying, oh, Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's. His sister, of course, being him before he transitioned. (laughs) And Joan Roughgarden, an evolutionary biologist who transitions in the opposite direction, found that her relative pay went down after she transitioned. She lost her seat on the University Senate Committee. But most of all, she said her work was attacked and disrespected and she personally was attacked in a way that she had never been when she was living as a man. So people would say, oh, you haven't read the literature we don't understand the statistics. And she was horrified by this because she'd never experienced it before. To start with, she said, well, I thought if women are going to be discriminated against, then I'm darn well going to be discriminated against too now I'm living as a woman. And then she said, but the novelty of that has worn off, I can tell you. Now, when you talk about this authority gap, you know, as you say, there's sort of two sides for it, one of which is those positions of authority, one of which is the sort of authority accorded to a woman, you know, in a conversation, in a um, in terms of the sum- assumptions that are made about their capabilities and importances. I mean, one of these things is more apparently measurable than the other and more remediable in a concrete way, isn't it? Because you can say, how many women have we got at board level? How many women are being promoted? What are they being paid? The other side of that is something that's that's cultural. I mean, is that something that you can actually kind of get at or remedy in a useful way because culture obviously is you know it's upstream of everything else it's very very hard to to change yeah that's a very good question it is much harder because all of this comes from our unconscious bias well of course for some men it's conscious bias but for most I'm being charitable I think it's unconscious bias and actually women suffer this unconscious bias too so this is not a man bashing book at all but it's called unconscious for a reason. And we, so we can't get rid of it because it's just buried there deep in our brains. So all we can do is notice when it surfaces and try to correct for it. So we can notice if we are interrupting women more than we interrupt men. 
We can notice if we're not listening as attentively to women as we do to men. We can notice if we're challenging their expertise disproportionately. And we can notice if when we walk up to a man and a woman standing together, we automatically address the man before the woman. So it's really a question of noticing when we're doing this and then trying not to do it. It's hard and it's a bit like training yourself not to bite your nails or not to slump at your desk. But, you know, we've all tried doing these sorts of things and we can, if we just put a little bit of effort into it, change our behaviour. But if we're not aware we're doing it in the first place, we're never going to change. One of the amazing things, I mean, absolute revelation, was that there's an app for interrupting. <laughs> which, which just shows how often women are interrupted. It's generally by men. I mean, I came across a fascinating statistic because I thought, well, maybe it's just more junior women who get interrupted. No, if anything, it gets worse the more senior you get. So if you look at U- US Supreme Court justices, and you don't get more authoritative than that, Women make up a third of US Supreme Court justices, but they suffer two thirds of all interruptions. So in other words, they're four times more likely to be interrupted. And it's 96% of the time by men. So even having that amount of authority doesn't insulate you from this sort of behaviour. I mean, there are some some fascinating kind of double binds that go on here, because you say, you know, women are coded as being more meek and mild and, you know, sort of not, if they're assertive, it's negatively coded in the way it isn't with men. So how do women get away from, you know, if you step back, you're being good, but everyone ignores you. If you step forward, you're being strident and bossy and Harridan-like. What's the way around that? How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you kind of, if you like, start to undo it at a psychological level? It is really difficult for women, this double binds, because as you say, if you're not confident enough, people don't take you seriously, don't listen to what you're saying. If you are as confident as men, people start describing you as abrasive, strident, bossy, overbearing, stern, controlling, I could go on. And it is really, really hard to navigate that path between being not confident enough and being seen as too confident, which actually means just as confident as men. So it's not as easy as just leaning in. It's much harder than that. And what the research studies suggest is that the only way to be confident enough to be taken seriously without also being disliked is to add ladles of warmth to your personality so that you smile here you can see me you're you're talking to me on zoom and I'm smiling at you it's automatic you know you smile you make jokes you have to be incredibly careful not to dent a man's ego and you know this is an exhausting burden and it requires the agility of an Olympic gymnast on a balance beam to navigate whereas men can just saunter along the floor they just don't have to worry about this sort of thing Interestingly, actually, when men start showing stereotypically feminine traits, at least at work, they're not punished. So if men are more democratic in their leadership style, if they engage their employees more, people praise them and say, aren't they marvellous managers? But when women start to show the stereotypically male traits, which they have to show in order to get on at work, they are punished for it. You know, you, you borrowed from evolutionary psychology or cognitive psychology, the phrase, you talk about the heuristics, the way in which we navigate the world by a set of stereotypes and assumptions, you know, just to save the cognitive work that taking literally everything on its own merits would, would require. I wonder, on the basis of that, how deeply you think this 
structure, this set of ideas about the world, which causes this authority gap, are they cultural? Are they re the result of, if you like, you know, hundreds of years of what you might call patriarchy? Or are they buried somewhere deeper than that? Are they an e evolutionarily rooted? I think they're very culturally rooted because if you look at matriarchal societies, of which there are a few, the women and the men behave very differently. So, for instance, take competitiveness. People assume that women, are, on average, you always have to say on average, are less competitive than men. But if you, there were scientists who looked at two societies, the patriarchal one were the Maasai in Tanzania, the matriarchal one was the Kazi in India. And the Kazi women were more competitive than Kazi men, whereas the Maasai men were more competitive than Maasai women. But the Kazi women were even more competitive than Maasai men. <laughs> and so it shows that, that I really do believe a lot of this is culturally determined. There's, and, and you say hundreds of years of patriarchy, it's actually millennia, isn't it? It's several millennia. Well, yes, we've got to go back to Abraham and before. Um, if the cultural background is shifting, are we seeing any change in this downstream? I mean, are we seeing that, for example, you know, the, the parody is, you know, those sort of crusty Tory MPs who treated the influx of women MPs after the 97 election with, you know, various sort of crass and slightly sexist behaviours. We see these as sort of archetype of a slightly dinosaur-like generation that's going out. Are we finding that nine and 10-year-olds are all immensely more, I don't know, non-sexist in both their, their ways? I mean, are we seeing this authority gap disappearing? We're seeing it gradually narrowing, but it is very gradual and it will take a very long time to narrow unless we actually make an effort to narrow it. So yes, on the whole, MPs behave better in the Chamber of the House of Commons because they know they wouldn't get away with the sort of behaviour they did 30 years ago. And we are seeing more women being promoted to senior jobs. But actually, if you look at children, even five or six-year-old children, if you ask them to select members of a team to play a game which involves really, really smart children. Both girls and boys after the age of six are more likely to select boys than they are to select girls. And that is really sad that those stereotypes are happening so early, even though girls at that age are doing better at school than boys and have developed faster and are reading better and all that sort of thing. They still think that the really, really smart ones are boys. And then if you go to university age, another study was done of biology students and they asked biology students to rate who were the smartest and best performing members of their class. The women were very accurate in their ratings and just selected the smartest and best performing students. Men overwhelmingly selected other men, even when they weren't as smart or well performing as women in their class. So these are youngsters, you know, these are 19 or 20 year olds already showing a bias against women and towards men. And I find that pretty disappointing, actually. There's another study done of um, asking people in lots of different countries how suitable they think men and women are to be leaders. And rather sadly, again, I find young men are less likely than older men to say that women are just as suitable as men to be political leaders. So in some senses, we're going backwards. Where do you think that's coming from? I think there was a little bit of a backlash among boys and young men to the fact that girls are outperforming them at school 
and are starting to have a more equal chance in the workplace, actually. So I think it's a sort of defensiveness. There is also a very nasty undercurrent in the so-called manosphere, which is men on the internet who, who, who espouse extreme misogyny. And it's often tied up with white supremacy as well. And they are trying to groom young boys, you know, 11, 12 year olds through gaming websites, through YouTube, through supposedly innocent channels into into views of really extreme misogyny that ought to worry the authorities, I think, almost as much as as the way young boys and teenagers are being groomed into terrorism. It's really very worrying. And I don't think either schools or, or the government are taking it seriously enough. Yes, you say, actually, when you're talking about, because you move on in your later chapters to talk about this business of the, you know, having a woman, you know, being a woman on the internet in possession of an opinion and what that gets you. Um, and you gave quite precisely, to my surprise, this kind of explosion of online misogyny to 2010 or thereabouts. Why so precise? Is it, was there a moment? I mean, are you talking about Gamergate? Well, I, I think I think it was yes. Gamergate, of course, was was one of the earliest, but it was the explosion of social media and anonymized accounts. I think it's much easier to send a rape threat or a death threat to a woman if your account can't be traceable and you can't be prosecuted. It is really scary. So women are twenty seven times more likely to be abused online than men, and this was proven by a study which um, went into chat forums and just assigned randomly male and female names to exactly the same subject matter. And yeah, women were 27 times more likely to be abused. And we all know how women in public life are really viciously abused online. Again, as I say, rape threats, death threats, even being killed like Joe Cox. But what I didn't realise was how much this happens even to utterly innocent, unpublic facing women and girls. So, you know, a girl can put up a video on YouTube about braiding her hair and there'll be rape threats in the comment section. And you just think, what sort of sick person wants to do this? And I do think it's a backlash against women finding their voice. It's, it's really imposing a tax on women having a voice because it does deter women from speaking out online or indeed in public because they're so scared of what will happen in response. And a lot of the threats, interestingly, are to do with being choked, being throttled, having your head cut off for, for oral rape, you know, all the, having your tongue cut out, all to do with physically silencing women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the, the example that's in front of everybody's minds is J.K. Rowling at the moment. And that, you know, is a lot of people who are on what you might call the gender critical side of debate see the violence of those attacks as being essentially themselves misogynistic. Do you agree with that? I think they are, yes, because it's interesting that, for instance, uh, that the director of the think tank I chaired until recently, James Kirkup, has written exactly the same sort of things as J.K. Rowling or indeed Janice Turner and has had none of that vitriolic hatred or threatened violence aimed at him. And he's actually written pieces pointing out that as a man saying this sort of thing, you can get away with it. As a woman, you really can't. So, yes, I do think it's misogynistic. Some of the thesis of your book, you know, in in overarching shape of it, you know, will be fairly familiar to most kind of bien-son people in that, you know, you we have a sort of running joke about mansplaining about, you know, yes, Perkins, could you now say that 
that so that you can take credit for it because a woman just said something interesting or you know these sort of running jokes are very much in the atmosphere what was there in researching your book that really surprised you oh gosh all sorts of things I suppose the extent to which this happens even to women who have already been accorded a huge amount of authority I mentioned the Supreme Court justices but I also interviewed about 40 or 50 incredibly authoritative women for the book, as well as women from other backgrounds. Um, but, you know, former presidents and prime ministers and presidents of the Supreme Court and generals in the army and that sort of thing. And the fact that they, that even they have come up against it, I thought was pretty good proof that all of the rest of womankind have too. But I also wanted to find the actual ammunition for this, you know, the research evidence that backs it up. Because every time it happens, every individual instance of it happening to an individual woman, she can always doubt herself and think, oh, well, maybe I didn't express myself well, or maybe I wasn't confident enough, or maybe I didn't really know my stuff. And so it's very undermining of women's confidence. And I wanted to say, look, it's not about you. It's not your fault. It's a systemic problem. And therefore, you don't have to blame yourself. You can't actually blame the unconscious bias in everybody else for this. And also, I think maybe I wanted a bit of a wake up call to men, not all men. Some men are fantastically respectful in the way that they treat women, but some really aren't. And I wanted to say to them, look, you are being unfair here. And it would be fantastic for the rest of us if you just examined your behaviour and perhaps changed it a bit. There is a sort of peculiar aspect of it. And you, you, several of the very high performing women you've spoken to have said the reason they're so good at what they do is because they know they're sort of swimming against the tide a bit. I mean, I think you quote, among others, you know, Christine Lagarde, and um, I think it was Angela Merkel, I think you might have meant, saying, you know, they master their briefs 10 times over. They're absolutely across everything. I mean, is this in some ways a sort of unlooked for benefit of this, that actually some women are much, much better at their jobs because they're having a harder time? Uh, I guess so, though it's an it's quite a high tax to impose on them, isn't it? <laughs> they do know. I mean, Janet Yellen told me the story, the you know, current US Treasury Secretary. But when she was chair of the Federal Reserve, she used to put an enormous amount of effort into preparing for press conferences. And her male deputy used to say to her, Janet, you just don't have to do this. You could just walk into that room and do it off the top of your head and you'd be fine. And she said, no, I just don't dare. And the reason is that women know that they will be criticised so much more harshly than men if they ever do trip up. And they're much less likely to be given a second chance if they fail. And therefore, they just have to prepare, prepare, prepare in order not to let a chink show. So, yeah, they probably do end up doing their job better, but <laughs> it's enormously hard work. Yeah. Well, you say of, of those women who do their jobs very well, that, that you, know, you, you point out that the countries that have been led by women have generally aced the coronavirus crisis in a way that you know men busking it have less so not to point any fingers but you also say for instance that you know governments led by women tend to be more I think inclusive and caring was the quote you talk about how they tend to be you know, more collegiate more interested in you know less interested in spending money on guns and bombs more interested in spending money on you know welfare and health and education and so forth are these innately feminine characteristics that you see these leaders as bringing to the to the table or are these socially conditioned 
by exactly the patriarchal setup you think we've got? I think they're a bit of both. And I don't want to just characterise all women as angels and all men as devils. That's not how I see it at all. These are only averages. They are based on rigorous research, by the way. It's not just anecdote. Uh, they are only averages. And some women don't have any of these feminine traits. And some men have a lot of them. But on average, I think women are more interested in health, education, welfare, probably because on average, they have been more responsible for their children than their male partners, if they have them, have been. And they're closer to the to the coalface. They're the ones who've been dealing with the teachers at parents' evening. They're the ones who've taken their children to the GP. And so they're just more aware of the failings of these public services and, and the importance, perhaps, of running them better or, or funding them better. I want to ask also about some of the peculiar and unexpected exceptions. You say, for instance, that you know, the unconscious biases that say women aren't allowed to take agency or to, you know, be assertive in a public space. Apparently black women get a free pass on this. And yeah. so do lesbians. How do, <laughs> where does that come from? Well, I, black women on the whole have a bigger authority gap than white women. So I, I should start by saying that they are more likely to be underestimated, more likely to have to prove their comp competence before people accept them as having expertise. So that is definitely, um, you know, you know, their colour works against them. And it's a sort of compounding variable alongside the um, being female. But there is this stereotype of the assertive, confident black woman. I suppose probably because traditionally black women have been more likely to be single mothers and so they have had to sort of fight their corner harder perhaps than white women have. And therefore people recoil less when they see a black woman being confident and assertive than when they see a white woman being confident and assertive. And the same is actually true of lesbians who in terms of stereotypes are somewhere in between straight women and men. They're expected to, to act in a traditionally more masculine way and therefore they can get away with it more. And it's interesting, actually, you, you quite often see lesbians working in quite male-dominated workforces such as the police and the army. And I think they often find it easier to get on there perhaps than straight women do. In terms of the remedies you propose, I mean, one of the most sort of politically tricky is this idea of affirmative action and quotients and positive discrimination, whatever you want to call it. You know, this is what a lot of people would call, you know, that's a box teching exercise. And you yourself highlight the difficulty there is that you're seen as a diversity hire and it actually diminishes rather than enhancing your authority. Is there a way around that? Or is there, I mean, do you think there are other ways of doing it? than, as it were, box ticking and quote ticking, because there's a lot of resistance to that. There is a lot of resistance, and I completely understand the resistance. But look at the difference in the parliamentary representation of women in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So the Labour Party had all women shortlists, only in half of all winnable seats, by the way, not in all of them, only in half. And as a result, it's now got to 50-50 representation. And the Tories are way behind and the trouble is, if you were selecting entirely on merit, there wouldn't be a problem. But you're not. And so individual constituency associations will think, oh, let's have a nice young man. And maybe his wife will help out at the cupcake stall. <laughs> and it is much harder to be selected as a woman in the Conservative Party, even if you're just as good or possibly better than the male candidates you're competing with. And so although I hate quotas, 
I have to admit that sometimes it's the only thing that works while we still retain this subconscious bias. But you can then get over it once you get in. You can get over the sort of diversity hire problem, I think. So, for instance, on one of the boards on which I sit, it had been all male for 125 years. And they decided to hire, to their credit, two women, not just one, because that makes it much easier for the women around the table if there's more than one. And the other woman's fantastic, very bright, very experienced, very good. I'm not going to speak for myself. But at the end of the first year, we had a board evaluation and the men were asked about, well, we were all asked about how the board worked and what had sort of been the most important thing in the previous year. And the men all said, we were so surprised by how good the women were and how easily they fitted in. And it's been marvellous. And I thought, well, that's great, but why were they so surprised? (laughs) There's your sense that, that, you know, if you like, it's a necessary evil that you get through a generation maybe in which, you know, a lot of people will say this is unfair because, you know, women are being promoted, you know, by quota. And that then that that will help to undo the the authority gap and then it will all just happen naturally. It will really help. Though you have to be careful that you carry on appointing women properly on merit because it's a bit like an elastic band that as soon as you let go, it tends to snap back to the default. And I'm not in favour of appointing a less qualified woman over a better qualified man. But there may be occasions in which if a similarly qualified man and woman are both going for the same job and you've got very few women at that level, then it makes sense to appoint the woman. But only if they're equally qualified. I don't think we should be appointing women who aren't as good as the men they're up against. Right. An interesting thing you bring out is that having one woman on the board can actually make it worse. Can you explain what, what it is? Actually, what I point out is having one woman in a team of candidates for a job can make it worse. So if, if you've got one woman on a shortlist and five men, then what you are implicitly saying to the selectors is that the men are much better than the woman. That's what happens in their subconscious. And they're actually much less likely to appoint a woman if there's only one on a shortlist. This is what the research shows. If you have more than one woman on a shortlist, then they have a much more equal chance. It's interesting, isn't it? You don't realise that that's the message that's being sent to you, but it is. But one woman on the panel of selectors is also a problem. If you only have one woman on the interviewing panel, that often makes it worse because the men think, oh, I don't have to worry about diversity because she's taking care of it. And she worries that if she suggests that they ought to take the woman rather than the man, that she's going to be seen as nepotistic. So actually, that often works against women if they're up against an interview panel that has a woman on it. Are there sort of ways of doing this that aren't, that that are sort of blind recruiting, if you like? Because that seems to be the flip side of the idea of you recruit her because she's a woman. You know, what happens if you say we will recruit when we don't know whether she's a woman? Yes, uh, blind, blind applications are a very good idea because women are 30% less likely to be called for a job interview than a man with equal qualifications. So having a blind CV is a very good idea and, and a blind job application. Of course, you can't really interview people blind. You're going to know what their gender is then. But at least you're then getting more women to interview. But we've all heard, I'm sure, about the blind auditions for U.S. symphony orchestras. You know, U.S. symphony orchestras used to be, I don't know, 99 men and a harpist who was a woman. And so they start and they used to say, well, at the very highest echelons of of 
instrumental playing, men are just a bit better than women. And then they started doing blind auditions behind a screen. And to start with, it didn't make any difference because they could tell from the shoes, from the sound of the shoes on the floor, whether it was a woman or a man walking up to be auditioned. So they got them doing it in stocking feet or in socks. And suddenly the women started being selected at the same rate or even slightly higher rate than men. So, yes, I do think blind applications are a good idea. But there is a sort of school of thought which will say, oh, this is all just wokery. Why is there such a strong, I mean, what, you know, why do you read that bit as being a sort of general purpose backlash against, you know, the idea that, you know, a lot of the things that you touch on, you know, the idea of intersectionality, the idea of unconscious bias, of patriarchy, of all these, these things that are very sort of familiar to kind of liberal progressive audiences. There is a kind of tendency to write them all off as just being woke. Do you think that, why do you think that is? Why is there this war on woke? And what, you know, do you think woke is a useful expression? Well, not really. But, uh, you know, it's because people don't like losing their privileged position in society, isn't it? I I use the analogy of men are swimming in a river with the current. They can't feel the current, but they see the banks of the river racing past him. They think, God, I'm a good swimmer. And they see women swimming in the opposite direction against the current and, and struggling to make headway against it. And they think, well, they're just not as good at swimming as I am. And, you know, privilege is invisible. I don't really notice my white privilege. I don't know. I mean, I drive a a slightly battered, but I drive an old Mercedes and I've never been stopped by the police driving my Mercedes, except when I've been speeding, because why would they? And if I were black, I probably would have been stopped lots of times and been asked, how can you afford a Mercedes? You know, are you dealing drugs? We don't notice this if it doesn't affect us. And so... I completely understand why men might say, oh, this is all rubbish. I've never noticed it. But please ask women how it feels and what's happened to them and then reassess your opinion. And, you know, maybe read the book and see see all this evidence, you know, proper rigorous evidence that I've cited. It's not wokery. It's just fact. And what's in it for us then? speaking as a privileged male. (laughs) Actually, what really cheered me up and what I hope will cheer you up is there is so much in it for men as well as women. And, you know, you might think that that equality is, gender equality is like a seesaw in which if if women rise, men fall. But in most instances, this isn't the case at all. Actually, it helps both sexes. And what I discovered is that in more egalitarian countries, Men report higher, twice as high, in fact, life satisfaction. They're much more satisfied with their life. They're half as likely to be depressed. They drink less, they smoke less, they take fewer drugs, and they're less violent. And in more gender equal relationships, in which men like you, Sam, share the childcare equally and the chores equally, not only are the women happier and healthier, which you would expect, and the children are happier and healthier and they do better at school and they have fewer behavioural difficulties, but the men are happier and healthier and they have a much better relationship both with their partner, their wife, girlfriend, whatever, and with their children. They sleep better at night. And here's a complete clincher. They get more frequent and better sex. So, guys, what's not to like about this? <laughs> And all you have to do is give up drinking, smoking and having a fight for that. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Marianne Seacott, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.